Everybody knows everybody. It's a saying they throw around a lot in Raymond, Washington. An eclectic, sort of salt-of-the-earth Pacific Northwest town known for its logging, oyster farms, and the salty air that blows into town from the Pacific Ocean. And there's another saying locals would also become familiar with afterwards, when it all came to a head in 2003. You never know what goes on behind closed doors. They were referring to the quaint little red farmhouse just outside Raymond with the white picket fence. Even the mailbox was cheery. On the side, smiley faces had been painted on little yellow suns alongside pink hearts. But the gate to this idyllic little home, complete with bird feeders and wind chimes, was always closed on this quiet country road. Michelle Notek's daughters were always well-appointed at school, outfitted with the latest fashions. Michelle's third husband, David, was a local boy. Everybody loved David. Michelle, or Shelley as she preferred, was known to be nice when she wanted to be. And you know small towns, people talk, assign cruel nicknames. But in this case, in this town, Crazy Shelley well, let's just say that might not have been too far off the mark. Behind her back, she was called Crazy Shelley because of her volatility. She was known to run hot, like a kettle full of water left boiling on the stove. A metaphor, certainly for Shelley's temperament, it fit. That it just happened to be one of her favorite tools of torture, a sadistic ritual she enjoyed, forcing her victims to pour scalding hot water on their wounds. But Shelley wasn't alone. David was a willing recruit, and the kids, let's just say on that secluded four-acre farm, where Shelley relished abusing and torturing vulnerable people like Kathy, it was a family affair. She stopped breathing. I tried to clean out her air passage. I tried to do a CPR, but no air was getting to her lungs. Nothing was happening. I realized she was gone. The power to abuse and manipulate others was too sweet and intoxicant for Shelley, who reveled in her victim's suffering, and suffer they did. While she was on top of the stairs, lying on the floor, they kicked her twice. One in the face, one in the back of the head, broke her jaw. They went to take her to the hospital. It was like five or six days of torture, they tortured her. And Kathy wasn't Shelley's only victim, which begs the question, how is it possible that this woman, known as Crazy Shelley, could be getting out of jail soon? Her parole's coming up, and I'm gonna do my damnedest to keep her in there. As far as I'm concerned, she could rot in jail. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is the scene of the crime. Carolyn, I have to tell you, of all of the stories that we have done so far, this is the one that has so far been disturbing me the most. Really? It really is. And I think it's the involvement of the children. Yes. The indoctrination into this violence and evil that they never had a chance. They never had a chance in a normal life. Mm -hmm. and, and it just is so sad. And, and I wonder where they are today, how they are today. And maybe we'll get into that later in the story. But I just, 
<laughs> it's funny, you know, adults can can torture and be cruel to each other. Mm-hmm. But when you start involving the children, mm-hmm. it gets under my skin in a way that just I, I can't let it go. Like I was seriously up all night last night thinking about recording this episode today. You know, I'm wondering as I'm hearing you because I feel the same way. But I, do you think for me, it's kind of both as someone as a child, a former child, my little child self, and then also as a mother with children. Yes. And I wonder how much of our own past, you know, play, you know, and, and of course, you know, this is an extreme version, but I know you've had a somewhat volatile childhood. I would say the same about me because I've been the same way about being up at night and thinking about this. So let's get right to it, Kim. My sources on this story are the Seattle PI, Murderpedia, and a piece in the sun. So I wanted to start off with a little backstory on Michelle Notech, who, as I said, went by Shelley. Her mother abandoned her when she was little, and she would never see her again because not long after she took off with her boyfriend, he would beat her to death. Shelley would grow into a pretty young woman. She married her high school sweetheart and had a baby girl before that relationship ended. Shelley married for a second time and has another daughter before that marriage ends as well. And it's reported that Shelley's incessant manipulation is to blame for those failed marriages. In the mid-80s, though, Shelley meets her third husband, David Notek. He grew up in Raymond, Washington. He passed a test to become a priest, but went into the military instead. He was in the Vietnam War, and after that, he came back home and went into construction. And he has been described as a great guy, mild-mannered, but also weak-willed. Shelley and David married in 1987, and he's happy with having a ready-made family and loves Shelley's daughters, who at the time are 12 and 9. But he quickly learns that Shelley has a barbaric means of disciplining her children, and it's said that she also beats him too. Despite his initial reservations about the physical and mental abuse that Michelle levels at her children, David will end up participating in the abuse. Around 1988, Shelley invites her 13-year-old nephew to come live with them. Shane Watson is known to be a sweet boy who loved the outdoors. But early on, he had a really tough life. His grandmother was murdered. His mom was a drug addict, and his dad was in a biker gang who was sentenced to hard time behind bars. This is so sad. I mean, all of these children just never had a chance. I mean, that poor 13-year-old, he's trying to escape Mm -hmm. a broken home, a violent home, and he winds up in one that's even worse. Yeah, he was the perfect vulnerable soul for Shelley to welcome into her home. Shane's grandfather, who was his guardian, felt the move to the farm with his aunt Shelley and step-uncle David was a blessing. So that's the setup when Kathy Lorena comes on the scene. Kathy had moved with her mom and her and some of her other siblings when she was 19 to Raymond from California. The family was excited for a fresh start after the, her stepfather had been killed in a car accident. And Kathy had known grief in her short life. Her father, too, had been killed earlier. Kathy trained to be a hairdresser and worked at Bobby's Beauty Parlor. And she was known to be the sweetest person, kind and quiet, with a love of simple pleasures, like chatting with clients and then settling in at home with her mom for a quiet night watching TV. So, Kim, I got a chance to talk with Kathy's big brother, Jeff Loreno, and he says somewhere along the line, Kathy's mom felt it was time for her to spread her wings. It was more just time 
Kathy to get out on her own. My dad passed away. He got killed at filming Universal Studios, filming uh, Black Sheep Squadron with Robert Conrad. So she got a little money. She bought a little house. And my mom kept telling her, get away. You know, you need to move out of this place and start your life. So that's when they got in a little argument and she moved out. Kathy was temporarily staying with a friend after the family squabble, and then she lost her job. Shelley had been one of Kathy's clients, and in 1989, Shelley couldn't have been less threatening. At the time, her belly was swollen with the pregnancy of her third child, a girl, and recognizing that Kathy was in a precarious state financially and estranged from her family, she offered Kathy a safe harbor at the farm in exchange for being a nanny and mother's helper. Given her situation, her desperation, how could she refuse? And honestly, it's really... Typically, statistically, mothers are the least likely to abuse other people. I know. So so I could see where she would feel like this was a comfortable place to land. Yeah. And, and that's the thing about uh, Shelly is that people would say, you know, she was a master manipulator, that she could appear like the nicest person in the world. Plus, Kathy had this great relationship with her own mother. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, might make her look more favorably on kind of any mother figure. Yeah. I mean, when I was doing the research, a lot of the stories that I'd read made it seem like there was this huge blow up. But Kathy was loved by her family. You know, oftentimes we have rifts with our families and we just, for whatever reason, we get stubborn. We, you know, we just don't want to give up the goat. But Kathy, even though she was in a rift with her family, she was loved. I well, just and the rift say that. was <clears throat> over the fact that she wanted to stay living at home with yeah. her family. So, yeah. I mean, like yeah. th- there's that connection there, obviously. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If only Kathy knew she had just made a deal with the devil, something Shelley's girls and Shane Watson were already very well aware of. Shelley's daughter alleged that their mother had been physically and mentally abusing them for years once they became teenagers. Some of the abuse, for example, they'd be forced to sleep outside in freezing weather, another favorite punishment of Shelley's. And this is this really hit me. She called it the wallowing, hmm. where they were forced to take off their clothes and roll around in the mud for crimes like going to the bathroom without asking. And she would spray them down with like a hose. At so they night were like in the freezing in the yeah. mud. Yes. That yes. is so. And why? It's very. She make them too. like naked. That's a part of her. That's a part of her diabolical psychopathy. It reminds me of uh, I, I heard something once, and I can't remember where it was from. Uh, where somebody was talking about the crime of rape, and how you know, although we see it as a sexual crime, it's actually a crime of violence yes. because by tearing somebody down in that way literally making them naked to the world Mm -hmm. and then abusing them. It's like a whole other level of torture and violence. Yeah, and she's also accused of forcing her daughters to cut bits of their pubic hair off while she watched and laughed. Locking them up in a chicken coop, she shoved one of her daughters head first through a glass door. As her face was dripping with blood, Shelly shouted, look what you made me do. Oh, and how old were the girls at this time? When she got married to her third husband, they were 12 and 8. Then Shane was 13. So they're around this time. Early teens, you know, early kind teens. of. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, such, a, such a vulnerable age oh, where yeah. they may look and at times act as if they are young adults, mm-hmm. but truly they're not. Mm-hmm. So Shane becomes another person for Shelley to torment physically and emotionally. He was forced to wallow with his cousins 
And she is also accused of making her daughter slow dance naked with her nephew. Ugh. But after Kathy moves in, and here's the insidious part about it. Shelly lays off Shane and the girls, focusing all of her rage, manipulation, and cruelty on her new tenant. And a cruel understanding in the household unfolds. Shelly makes it known that if the kids don't beat Kathy, she'll beat them. Forcing the kids into cruelty did two things. It messed with their psyche and made them conspirators in the abuse of Kathy. This is totally reminding me of The Lord of the Flies, you know, that that book, that famous book where, you know, the, the tension between individuality and mob mentality. Yeah, totally. And I was looking up what's called the bystander effect. And basically, it's like the more people that are around watching something happen, the less likely any one of those people is to step in and stop it. Oh, yeah. Like, I don't know if you're familiar with the Kitty Genovese story, but this is something that I took way back in college. (laughs) It has stayed with me all these years where this woman who lived in New York in the middle of like all these, you know, tenements and stuff, and she's being raped and nobody will come Uh. and help her. And all the neighbors are hearing, everybody's hearing, and they say, if you're being attacked, Shout fire that you will more likely to get help if you shout fire than if you uh, shout, you know, help, help I'm being me. raped, you know, help I'm being attacked because people don't want to get involved. That mob mentality. Everybody assumed that somebody else had called the police. And this is a funny nobody thing. had called. My family gets mad at me because I'm always like, I need to stop and help that person. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they really like maybe they've already had help. Like if I see somebody on the side of the road, mm-hmm. I will want to stop. We. <laughs> We were actually camping. We're going on a camping trip in our RV. Six people in our RV, and I see somebody on the side of the road, and I'm like, we should stop and help them. And my husband is like, what do you think we're going to do? Like, we can't add anybody else to this vehicle. Like, what? Why? Mm-hmm. I'm just, like, He's, you know, obviously the level-headed one who says, hey, guess yeah. what? They probably have a cell phone, or somebody else has probably already stopped to help them. When I see somebody on the side of the road, my thought is, what if everybody assumes they've already been helped? What if everybody assumes they have a cell phone, they can Mm -hmm. call for help themselves, and then everybody just drives by and they never get help? Well, and you're right to assume that because we know that, you know, it stayed with me all these years later that, you know, people, mob mentality is kind of a weird thing. And it makes people not do the things that they would normally do if they were an individual. One of Shelley's daughters would later say, quote, I think she meant to abuse Kathy just like she abused us. She got off on it. She liked the power. She liked doing it. And it got worse and worse. So this is a power. power. Yes, that's right. So and and it's almost like uh, a drug or an addiction where, you know, the same level of abuse no longer gives her that high. Yeah. So she has, she to, has keep to keep ramping it up, up. or and adding people. Yeah, exactly. And then she's so she's got these multiple manipulations going on between the actual victim in that moment. They're all victims. But, right. But just the, the one that's getting abused physically, physically and mentally. And then you've got the other abuse going on. So she's really getting it from both. Both corners. But Kathy's brother considers what the kids did to Kathy unforgivable. Let's just say, good thing I don't see them. They live in a different state because they knew what's right or wrong. They knew what they were doing. They're chasing around Kathy in the house, trying to stab her with scissors. They're like seven, eight years old. They know what's going on. And then the older ones even knew what's going on. They didn't call the police. I granted they were all scared and stuff. I understand that. But they let all that happen. You know, Kathy, do you know she was kicked in the head by them? You know, it's so funny, though, going back to that whole Lord of the Flies thing. 
I don't know if you're familiar with the idea of the hierarchy of needs. Mm-mm. This is a, a theory that was proposed back in 1943 by a guy named Abraham Mas- Maslow. But it's something that is still kind of referred to today. Like it's a pretty valid theory. And basically there's this pyramid. And at the very bottom are your base needs, breathing, eating, sleeping, your very base physical needs. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have those met, you can't kind of climb the pyramid to the next level. So the next level is safety, um, making sure you have security of body, you have resources, you have a family and you're healthy, those sorts of you know kind of second level needs. And then the third is love and belonging, like friendship and family um, and sexual intimacy. The next level of this pyramid is esteem. That means like confidence, self-esteem, respect of others, respect of yourself. And then the, the top level of this pyramid is self-actualization. And that's where you can do things like become creative, Mm -hmm. become spontaneous, problem solving, thinking outside the box. So really using your brain, your, you know, your highest level of thinking, but going all the way back down to the bottom of the pyramid, if you don't have those basic needs met, if you can't sleep, if you can't breathe, you're never going to climb this pyramid and be able to reach the self-actualization. And so with Lord of the Flies, the theory is that basically they got to the second level. So they had food, they could breathe. The safety was something that in the book, you know, was was constantly being put into question. Mm-hmm. And, and so they were never able to to reach up and reach friendship, self-esteem, confidence, creativity. They, they could never even think about those things because they were so focused on meeting these more base needs. Well, and Shelley controlled... Inside of the house and outside of the house, even when the kids were outside of the house, she was still in control. And they had to come home at some point and they knew they were going to face repercussions, I'm sure, for whatever happened outside the home. So there's, yeah, there is no escape even when they're not home. That's right. So when Kathy first joined the family, she was in good health, and life on the family farm couldn't have been more pleasant. Kathy was treated like a family member. But somewhere along the line, things changed. It was all good. They were friends. And Kathy took care of Shelly's kid when they were younger. And then I don't know what happened. A couple of years later, she turned on her. You know what it was? It was Kathy finally got away from Shelly because she couldn't take anymore. It started getting bad. Kathy was at the mall with one of her friends. And Shelly happened to be at the mall and started reaming Kathy, you know, bitching at her and this and that. And Kathy had to go with her. Now, I don't understand that. <clears throat> Why, if she had other people that she was connected with, she had other friends, you'd think that she would find a way to escape this situation, find either someone else that she could stay with, or have someone give her advice of, you know, go to a shelter, reach out to your family. I mean, if she had other people she could talk to and and get help from. And that's the million dollar question in these kinds of really abusive, abusive relationships. And Kathy, by then, was already so under Shelley's spell. I mean, I can't say why, but we know this happens. We know that's part of the abuse cycle. And part of the story has to do with Shelley's cycle of abuse and then contrition. There was that manipulation loop where Shelley would have her mood swings and one minute she'd be absolutely horrible, beyond horrible. And then the next minute she'd be sweet as pie, showering her victims with love and gifts. After that mall incident, she got all pissed off at Kathy. And then she was mean after that. And it seemed like about a month later, Kathy disappeared. We couldn't find her anymore. Every time we call over there, I talk to Shelley. Where's Kathy? Oh, she's with Rocky. They're on vacation. There was no Rocky. They already killed her. 
So we'll get to Rocky in a minute, but let's talk about that abuse and how it ramped up and to the point that they all beat Kathy. Shelley made her walk through the house doing chores naked. She was forced to crawl on all fours around the house. Shelley went from starving Kathy to feeding her rotten food. And she this is just my mind can't even and I'm grateful that my mind can't even wrap my head around this. But she forced her to use a mixture of bleach and boiling water to clean her wounds. They made her eat salt and medication. She was forced to live and work and outside in freezing temperatures with little or no clothing and then forced into the Shelley's wallowing punishment, you know, that made to immerse herself in cold water and mud and wallow. We now know that at the end of her life, Kathy was forced as a prisoner to live in the old pump house on the property. Now, I talked with Jeff about the last beating, the one where Shelley made Shane kick Kathy in the head when he was wearing steel-toed boots that ultimately led to her death. While she was at top of the stairs, lying on the floor, they kicked her twice. One in the face, one in the back of the head, broke her jaw. They wouldn't take her to the hospital. How do you recover from a broken jaw if you don't go to the hospital? You don't. And also the brain injury. So I say about five, six days later, she died. God, what like torture. Five, six days of torture, they tortured her. Yeah. But they did start to get scared by her weakening condition. They brought her into the laundry room in the house. Oh, how kind. Yeah. At that point. <sighs> see, and that's, here's the thing. Into the they're not even room. They're not even doing it for her. I mean, I feel like they were doing it because they're like, wow, we went too far. You yeah. know, this person can only handle... You know, you know, they can't survive being kicked in the head with steel-toed boots. So Kathy, at that point, could not walk or talk, had lost vision, and was choking on her own vomit when David finally tried to help. Jeez. Oh, he said he tried to give her CPR, but it just it wasn't working. I and think it's it's more of him realizing she's going to die and I'm going to be oh. on the hook for murder if I don't do something. At least maybe I could get off on manslaughter oh. if I try to help. Yeah, that's exactly what I believe it was, too. What they didn't know at the time was that Shane took Polaroid photos of Kathy naked, covered in bruises and crawling on the floor before she died documenting the massive abuse she'd endured over so many years. He hid those photos in a teddy bear. Then he helped David dispose of Kathy's remains by basically they built a homemade crematorium in the backyard, burned her. Wow. Yeah, they put like, he put like these tin structure over the top of it and then just kept loading wood in there and, and, and burned her body. And then they dispersed it at the beach in buckets. Um <sighs> And then Shelly did her part. She made sure to scare the hell out of the kids with threats. She told them that if the police were called, she'd kill the whole family. Kathy was last seen in 1994. And the Lorena family are suspicious of Shelly. Like, they've been calling and calling. Where's my sister? Where's my sister? Where's Kathy? Now, through all of this, did she ever call her family for help? I mean, it sounds like her brother knew the abuse was happening. I think that they had conversations with her, but I don't think that she shared the what was happening the seriousness the of seriousness it. of it what it what was happening because she lived there for like five years and so it was just as we've talked about so many times i mean it's it's unfathomable to understand why she just didn't walk out the door and leave but we know that it happens so many times yeah you know this isn't you know it, it's it's particularly horrible because 
Shelly is getting so much pleasure off of this and the descriptions and the things that she would make them do and the the thrill. I mean, it's it's just I don't know why, but they were suspicious of Shelly. They did not believe her. And so they contact the, the Pacific County Police Department and they file a missing persons report. So police went for a welfare check at the Notex, you know, their family farm with that mailbox and the sun, you know, the 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 painted faces and all that. But Shelly is ready. She tells them that Kathy took off with a trucker named Rocky. I mentioned him earlier and that they left town years before. Shelly even shows officers a photo of Kathy next to a trucker in front of a semi truck. The family puts out a you know, photo in the paper asking for help to find Kathy, and her brothers hire a private investigator who, after researching the case, speculated that Kathy was likely dead and that Shelley was involved. But without evidence, the missing person case goes cold. What law enforcement didn't know was that Shane, remember, he had taken those photos. And this is, he's the hero in this story. I mean, as much as he abused her and he took part in that at the same time, I mean, I feel like he's the one person who truly took some kind of action that that ended up having, you know, a positive effect on the whole situation. So, well, I mean, the intention was that he planned to go to the police. Unfortunately, Shane confided his plans to one of his cousins and... She told her mother. Oh, Shane! Shelly, Shane, why Shane? Shelly confronted (sighs) Shane and beat him. Two weeks later, Shane disappears in 1995. Oh gosh! This time, though, Shelly went on the defense. She reported to the police and to his school that her nephew was a runaway, that he had left town on a fishing boat headed for Alaska. A few years later, Shelly's older daughters would flee that demented farmhouse when they were old enough. Because remember, they were a lot older than the third, you know, baby girl who she was pregnant with her right. when, when Kathy. So they were, you know, when they were old enough, they left, right? So now there's the one daughter left. There's the little sister. Oh. And in 2001, Shelley has a new boarder, another vulnerable person down on his luck who will endure years of abuse. He's 57-year-old Ron Woody Woodard, and he had moved to Raymond from California to help his mother. Ron and Shelley had met while working for an organization that helps seniors. Shelley was some kind of a caseworker there, and Woody was a nurse's assistant, where he, like Kathy before him, was struggling. His hours were cut and he was short on cash. He lost his home and his long-term partner had left him. It is also reported that Ron had some mental health issues. So Shelley offers him to stay with her and the cycle of abuse continues. Now, worried about their her little sister, one of Shelley's daughters, at I believe it was 2001, walks into the police station and tells them about what has transpired over the last 10 years. She, you know, has the courage to go and do that. I would love to know what finally tripped her trigger on that and and got her to I, I think speak that she up. was worried about her sister, her mm. little sister. And that there was another, you know, another person they knew that there was another person living there. So the the police begin to investigate what happened to Kathy. They try to interview Shelley, but of course she is no help. And without any evidence, again, they say their hands are tied. They try to speak with Ron, the new tenant, who refused to speak with, with them. And although they see him around the property, they notice that he's acting strangely. And other people would say in the years that he would live there that he that he was acting very, very strangely. But Jeff says, uh, you know, Kathy's brother, remember, he's very critical of the Pacific County Sheriff's Office. And he says that they didn't try hard enough. 
In my opinion, I think it was fucking laziness. Pissed me off. It took two years. Kept bitching, I'm bitching, I'm so and so there, always on vacation. What do you mean he's on vacation? Nothing got done for like a year. So later, court documents would reveal that Shelley's youngest daughter witnessed Notek and her husband inflict physical and emotional abuse on Ron that was exactly the same as what they did to Kathy. And were they, were they abusing the youngest daughter as well or forcing her to take part in the abuse at this time? It's not clear as if she had to continue taking abuse. I mean, if she continued to participate in that. But what is clear is that she witnessed it. Mm-hmm. Him forcing his feet into boiling water until the skin peeled off, forcing him to jump from the second story roof onto gravel below, causing broken bones and wow. deep cuts that Shelley would burn his feet, his wounded feet with boiling water and bleach. Again, he was also seen working in the yard wearing only underwear and bare feet. Now, Ron was last seen. July 2003. In August 2003, both daughters returned, this time both of them, the older daughters, to the police station with fresh horrors to share. According to their 14-year-old sister, still living at the farmhouse, Woody was in imminent danger and that she believes the 14-year-old will be killed too once Ron is gone. So again, the, the borders are kind of like the filter between the abuse extending to them. So with the 14-year-old fearing for her life and giving a statement to the police, they say they finally have what they need to do something. They go to the NOTEC home with with Child Protective Services. The youngest NOTEC daughter rushes out and tells police that she is afraid for her life. She reveals that there are bloody shoes and clothes in the barn that belong to Ron. So basically, CPS takes the teen into custody, and they call for a search warrant on the property. And Shelly is in the wind. Uh, But later, David Notek goes to the police station demanding to get his daughter back. And while there, after hours of interrogation, he spills the beans. He basically says that Shelley had called him at work saying that Ron was dead. Shelley would later say that Ron had committed suicide by (laughs) jumping out of a tree because he was so depressed. But police end up, you know, with their search warrant, flocking to the NOTEC property, looking for Ron's body. Um, David admitted that he buried it in the backyard in a sleeping bag. And the autopsy on Ron would later reveal that he died from being beaten, poor diet and exposure. Eventually, though, and here we're going to take a little side journey because they track Shelley down to another property in Raymond. What some believe was given to her by another one of her victims. So apparently during that investigation where Kathy's missing and Shane's gone, has run away, according to Shelley, police didn't make the connection that in 2000, Shelley was hired by an agency to help vulnerable adults like senior citizens. So Shelley visited clients at home. One of these clients was an 81-year-old Pearl Harbor survivor named Mac, who lived alone and had hired Shelley to help care for him in 2001. Now, what's ironic here is that she goes into a a profession helping supposedly, quotes, vulnerable people. And these are just basically her hunting grounds. Well, I think what it is, is it's, it's a level of control. Mm-hmm. Whether she's helping them or she's hurting them, she is in control of their life. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think that these crimes, you know, put the spotlight on how vulnerable people who go missing or who are sick or who are old, you know, they just fall through the cracks because just a few months in Shelley's care, Mac writes a will bequeathing all of his possessions to Shelley. Now, it's not a lot. It's $9,000 in cash and his modest home with the stipulation that these assets are meant for Shelley to care for his beloved dog, Sissy. Oh, so basically, I'm sure I can just hear that conversation like, well, Mac, you know, what are you going to do? Who's going to take care of Sissy? You know, hey, I've got an idea. Yeah. <laughs> Leave everything to me. Um, you know, this this war hero. And it's so sad that it sounds like he didn't have any other family to take care of him or to give his dog to. Well, he happened to be best friends with Kathy's mom. He, oh. They were one of the people that the Bizarre. mom knew. Yeah. So, but, and Mac was no fool. You know, he stipulated that Shelley could only get the house after his dog died, roughly six months later. Yeah, well, she could just kill the dog, right? Well, <laughs> roughly six months later, Mac died from a blow to the head while in Shelley's care. Oh, they didn't even know what Shelley was doing. She was taking care of old people's home. And then she killed them. And then all of a sudden she came up like she owned that car. Or she owned that property all of a sudden. I go, dude, I talk to the FBI. I go, how come you haven't checked into this stuff? Oh, well, it's a good idea. I go, what do you mean it's a good idea? You're an FBI agent. You've gone to college. You've been doing this for 20 years. And you didn't think that Shelly, because she she took care of these people out of their homes, you didn't investigate other murderers? So he did. And that's how they found Max. And Max was just one of them. She's killed before. There's more people. That's just like I said before. Someone's stealing money from you, and you just caught him. Shelly's killed before. So that's how they found the Matt case, like when they yeah. were doing, when he went to him and said, hey, look at her, look into this woman. And then they were like, oh, oh, Matt. So she's right. a serial killer. Well, I mean, according, you know, allegedly, we don't we don't know for sure. He's He's, I mean, assuming all of this is as, you know, he's telling it. Well, it is as far as how he's telling it. Like Mac did die, you know. Um, you know, after David and Shelley were arrested, they said they take a second look at Mac's quote unquote accident. A side note, even though there was a for sale sign on Mac's house, Sissy, his beloved dog, would later be found on the no tech property alive and well. So she didn't kill the dog. She didn't kill the dog. You know, I think she said that the dog. Was I really, dead. I really want to give her some kind of kudos no, for that, but I, I can't. You, I, I can't knew do you were going to want to. I, I knew want you to. were going to want to, and that's the thing. You know, my stepmom was a little step monster, and I can look back on that. But she kept immaculate care of her animals. She loved those fucking animals. <laughs> I mean, it she, almost makes it worse that she it, couldn't care yes, for you as well she, as she did yes. for the animals. I think I look back. This story has dredged that up, yeah. where it's like she freaking loved those animals oh my god the anger in your eyes right now is so funny when you say she loved the animals but with the anger in your eyes you know what <laughs> it's incredible and it's like, because that's why i knew because you're such an animal lover yeah and it's like yeah it's just it makes it even worse that she she's capable of love that she's capable and care of care yes 
So eventually, Shelly is found hiding out at Mac's house, and she's taken into custody, immediately lawyers up. David, on the other hand, is confessing to other crimes, the murder of his step-nephew, Shane, who he says, you know, Shelly just couldn't control him anymore, and they knew that he was probably going to go and spill the beans. And so he went into, you know, a shed, and he with a rifle, or he says that they struggled over the rifle, but I feel, you know, based on his confession that, you know, he had talked earlier about felling a tree when he was nearby. I mean, like they may have struggled, but the plan was, you know, he had to go. So he shot him and killed him and then did to him what he basically did to Kathy, which is, you know, his homemade crematorium and then in barrels or buckets, you know, put his uh, remains in the beach. I think it's interesting because there was one person that was buried, right? Yes. Why wasn't that person cremated? You know, I don't know. I mean, maybe he didn't have the time. Maybe he just was wore out. Maybe because if he was they like, hadn't buried Ron, mm-hmm. like if they had cremated him, mm-hmm. she might have gotten away with all of this. Yeah. I mean, I think that it depends. People are now being convicted of murder without having the body. I think in the past, right. it was really like, you don't got a body. Don't talk to me until we got a body. But I think that that's changing. Mm-hmm. So, But who knows? I mean, when you hear about the deal they got, I mean, you, you're not – maybe you're right. So Notek said he disposed of Shane's body as he had Kathy, as I said, scattering their ashes on the beach. Eventually, he would plead guilty to second-degree murder for shooting and killing Shane and for burying Ron's body in the yard. At first, Shelley was charged with two counts of first-degree murder. But in a shocking turn of events, the charges were reduced because prosecutors didn't believe they had enough evidence to win. And also, they didn't want the girls to have to testify against their mother. I sort of feel like after all the things that the girls have been through, testifying Mm -hmm. might almost be therapeutic. Well, I tried to talk to the Pacific County Sheriff's Office to kind of get their take on it multiple times. I I, I guess three of the detectives have moved on that worked the case, and they wouldn't talk to me. I was like, you can't even give me the 30,000-foot view. So There's a reason they don't want to talk. They don't want to talk. They're not proud of this case. That's what I'm saying. Like, I mean, how else do you explain that Shelley got to enter an Alford plea, which is, you know, what an Alford plea is? It's basically saying, like— I'm not admitting to guilt, but I'm admitting that you would probably convict me. So I'm just going to go ahead and plead guilty. Right. So it was a deal between defense attorneys and prosecutors that would send her to prison for 17 years. What? But the judge didn't agree. And so he sentenced her to the maximum under that deal, which is 13 and a half years for the murder of Kathy Loreno and eight and a half years for the manslaughter of Ron Woodworth. To be served consecutively, I'm assuming. Yes. So in 2003, Michelle noted was 50 years old and she was sentenced to 22 years in prison. She has been serving her time at the Washington's Correction Center for Women in Gig Harbor. And I just having Jeff and having this conversation with him, we talked about the why. Why do you think knowing what you know now, how do you explain this? She won't tell us. She does, we don't know. She doesn't even know why she said. She said that Kathy was a friend and she doesn't know why she did it. She's a sick, demented woman. That woman is pure evil. So her husband, David Notek, after serving a 15-year prison sentence at the Monroe Correctional Complex, was paroled in 2018. What? He's out? Yeah. Daughters Sammy and Tori. Tori is his biological daughter, and Sammy is his stepdaughter. I guess they still talk with David. None of them talk with their mother because they believe any contact with her would endanger them and their families. In June of 2018, 22, Shelley could be released. 
But Jeff says over his dead body. You know, I haven't wrote my speech down yet, but basically that girl's a murderer. Her family's scared to death of her. She killed my mother's best friend. She killed my sister. And not only did she kill her, it wasn't a collapse and they were shot in the head. They tortured her for five or six days, for Christ's sakes. This lady shouldn't be out in public. She's a murderer. If that was your kid, if that was your granddaughter or your daughter, you're going to sit here and let her out and go to life and go have fun and go to the beach and go out to dinner and enjoy life? No. She should rot in jail. She murdered a person. Their life is over. Why should she be allowed to go out and have fun after killing someone? But one thing that's really interesting, he got a surprise call from Shelley's ex-girlfriend in prison recently. That I know I can look at, I can okay. see the look on your face. So just let's go. Shelly has a girlfriend in prison. Yes. A romantic. Yeah, I'm a girlfriend. Okay. Well, yeah. I know some yeah. people say girlfriend and they mean just a friend who's a girl. So no, just, I, no, I think okay. that he, the way that he was saying it was a girlfriend. But this phone call is surprisingly gives him some comfort. They called me a couple of years ago when she got out of jail. And she was the badass of the whole prison up there in, in Gig Harbor. And they said that was her girlfriend for a couple of years. And then after they saw Wicked Attraction, they all turned against her and they started kicking her ass every day. She was beaten up so many times. They had to put her in solitary confinement. Then her heart started going bad. Now she has a bad heart. She's in solitary confinement. I'm not sure if she's out in the population yet. I don't think so. But I hope she dies in jail. That is awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I no, mean, it's I know. not. I'm like, I don't want to wish violence on anyone. But that is like poetic justice. Yes. Well, here's the thing. I watched that Wicked Attraction and Jeff was interviewed for that. And he was saying, you know what? I hope she gets her ass kicked every day in prison. And they saw that because they didn't know what she'd done. Mm-hmm. And then they saw that and that happened. But apparently she was doing her manip. She was so manipulative. That was another reason they put her in solitary confinement, because she was causing so much drama and so much like BS that they're like, OK, you need to be separated. So I don't know if you know this, but my husband was actually a jail guard. No, for a couple I of years. Didn't know yeah. That. So and in Maricopa County, Arizona, mm-hmm. where they had Sheriff Joe Arpaio and they were super strict with their inmates. But he would tell me stories. And actually, there are a lot of stories he wouldn't even tell me because he knew they would disturb me too much. But basically what he said is it's like a Lord of the Flies in jail. And when you have people who are convicted of certain crimes like pedophilia, Mm -hmm. they would immediately separate them because they knew they would be targeted. And it's like this mentality in prison that there are certain crimes that are sort of acceptable. Mm -hmm. And there are certain crimes like pedophilia and child abuse and murder that are just beyond you know even what the other inmates can handle and they will target like they have to take their frustration and anger and energy out on somebody yeah and so these are the people that they target those are the first ones okay so i did i wanted to get you know jeff was so kind to give us the interview and he was just so honest and just so like you can hear the anger and he says i you know he gives those interviews because he wants people to know his sister and what she lived through and what they did and particularly since she's coming up for parole you know he just can't even believe this he's like you know manson was given you know blah blah blah. he, he mentioned all these people and he's right like how is this even possible i that wonder this person- too if it's because it's a woman it's really really hard i think sometimes for people to wrap their head around women being capable of such evil. I don't even know how this could happen, but I did want to leave, uh, I did want to him to share with us because so often, you know, victims get, you know, shuffled to the corner, you know, who Kathy was and what she meant to him. 
she would do anything for you. She's always smiling and laughing. Even if you did something mean to her, she would still be nice and, oh, oh, it's okay, you know, that kind of thing. Even though she never got pissed, I never saw her get pissed. She's the nicest, sweetest person. One of those nice girls that's so nice and stuff, didn't do anything for you. And then to have this big girl murder her, I can't even think about it. It's hard. And I think sometimes those are the people who are targeted even more violently because the, the person who is perpetrating the violence wants to get a reaction. And so if this person remains sweet and calm while you're being terrible to them, then it just escalates. Well, because it, it's a high for her. I mean, yeah. clearly just as we, you know, you don't have to have a, a psychology degree or a doctorate to see she is getting off on this big time for whatever demented reason, which we won't even go into because it doesn't matter. The bottom line is yeah. she picked her vulnerable victims. She knew that she wanted to continue doing it. She roped her kids in. Speaking of, do you think her kids are going to testify at her parole hearing? Well, what's interesting is her three daughters, the oldest is 44, the next one is 41, and the youngest one is 30. And they actually reached out to an author recently to write a book about what happened to their family in an effort to bring attention to the fact that their mother will be released in 2022 because they believe that she will kill again. I mean, they're terrified of this. They are terrified of this release. And to your question, According to that piece that I read in The Sun, you know, they are living really great lives. They have children. You know, they feel the daughter that turned Shane into her mom. You know, she just doesn't know why she did that. And she has tremendous guilt about about doing that. I mean, who 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 wouldn't you do this? You don't realize what you're doing. And children want to stay with their families. They don't want to be separated. I mean, we've seen that time and time and time again. The system doesn't do a great job of like thinking kids will be safe if they are separated from their parents. I mean, we've heard the foster care nightmares and you can't judge the kids. But then on the other hand, it's like you, you want to kind of judge them too. Because when you hear about what happened to Kathy, it's like, how could you stand by and yeah. watch and participate? But there's this indoctrination that happens mm -hmm. when you when it starts at such a young age. Yeah. And I think you don't realize how unusual, how, you know, unhealthy mm -hmm. your family life is when you grow up in it. Mm -hmm. you, you just don't see you. You think it's normal. Yeah. And you just want to be a kid. Yeah. You know, you just want to be a kid. So going into it, you know, we knew it was going to be a tough one. I hope I haven't given you more nightmares to think about. I have to say the one thing that I'm going to take away from this is those three girls are, I, this may come off terribly, but I think they're incredible. And I, I give them a lot of praise for coming out the other side. I'm assuming they probably got a lot of counseling, a lot of help to create a normal life for themselves and try to move on from this. Mm -hmm. and, and still, you know, they're going back to it. They're remembering the horrors because they want to make sure it doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. That takes a lot of courage. That takes a lot of strength. Yeah. I mean, Not to excuse. I mean, I don't want to excuse what they no. did, but maybe there is some forgiveness that can happen for them. Yeah, for sure. So, Kim, what do you have coming up for us next week? So I think this might be another tough one. We've got a kid who started out really young, getting into crime to feed himself, breaking into homes, stealing food. But then things escalated, and before too long, he stole an airplane and headed to the Bahamas. We'll talk about the Barefoot Bandit next week. I'm Carolyn Osorio with Kim Shepard, and this is The Scene of the Crime.